You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to stay inside the United States for our frog talk. A lot of times we talk about frogs outside of the country. I know I'm kind of biased towards Central and South America with the dart frogs, and we've talking about uh, we've talked about African species and whatnot, but we're going to focus on some native species. In fact, we're going to focus on a very specific biome, uh, which is unique to parts of the state of Pennsylvania, which is one of the eastern states here in the U.S. for my uh, international listeners. And uh, my guest tonight is uh, Aaron Capoli, and uh, he operates a not-for-profit uh, organization, PA Woods and Forests. And we're going to talk about some of his work with conservation, and we're also going to talk about uh, his vivarium builds, and he constructs some pretty interesting vivarium builds based on the Pennsylvania wooded area uh, biome. And uh, we're going to talk about all that, but of course, uh, the usual stuff, uh, thanks for the five-star reviews. I'm, I'm not going to beat a dead horse, but you know, thanks everyone who's taken some time to leave some nice comments and a nice review. It goes a long way. And for everything else for the show, check out the link tree. I've got links to everything in there. I've got my links to in-situ ecosystems. If you want to get a 10% discount off of a purchase... Make the purchase through the link in the link tree. You'll get 10%. Small commission comes back to me. And, of course, there's a patron page. If you want to become a uh, Patreon, if you, well, you wouldn't want to become a Patreon. Uh, you want to become a patron. So if you're interested in that, that link is in there as well. I've also got a link to Panamanian frog conservation. Uh, pretty much everything else is in there. So um, I'm going to... I'm going to turn the floor over to Aaron because I just want to tell everybody I was feeling a little bit under the weather uh, at the time of this recording, so I'm hoping my voice is going to hold out. But um, Aaron's got plenty to say, so uh, we're going to get into it. Uh, let, let's get into it now. Aaron, how are you doing? Welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Dan. I'm doing great. It's been an awesome experience connecting with you. It's it's my pleasure. I'm glad that we finally got a chance to talk. Um I really want to discuss so much with you, but why don't we start off with you first? Why don't you tell us about who you are and what some of your earliest experiences with amphibians were like and what led you to where you are today? Yeah, most definitely. Let me explain where I am currently, and then we'll kind of take a trip backwards in the past and talk about how I got into all of this. So, yeah, my name is Aaron Capoli, and I am the founder of the nonprofit PA Woods and Forests. I'm also currently, I just got the permit to be a licensed um, educator of native herps, which means I could legally have multiple common species unless I would get some type of special designation or really get into it with the state. But my, my goal isn't necessarily to, to keep some of the, the more rare species in the state. But anyway, so yeah, I'm a licensed educator now through the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a graduate student of Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and I'm in the biology department. I'm also a grad assistant. Uh, I have experience doing all kinds of odds and ends jobs, and I'm very excited to continue to build our nonprofit. And at some point, once I graduate, to become some type of a researcher and get involved with conservation of a lot of the overlooked species in the United States, which is our native frogs and toads. So. Let me segue in and explain how I became interested in these frogs and toads, and then uh, we can get more into it. So uh, when I was a little kid, my parents would always let us go and uh, explore out in the woods and all over the place. And that led to going to a couple of local plant nurseries and places that had some woodlands around them. 
in my grandmother's house, we would always find frogs and toads and we'd pick them up and handle them. And they, I just thought they were super neat. And I don't exactly know how it happened. I was seven or eight years old, but somehow we ended up getting a decent amount of money. And my dad said he's going to build my mom a pond one day because she always wanted one. So he built her a pond and it's like 700 to a thousand gallons. It varies depending on how full the pond is. But we started getting some frogs and some toads coming to the house and I got the chance to see them for a long time and just thought they were really interesting. My mom always had a passion. She loved frogs, but not quite uh, as intense as what I do. Uh, and we'll get into that later. But anyway, I think that she introduced me to frogs and toads at a very early age and I didn't really have any plans to become a researcher or keep frogs and toads or do any of the things that I'm doing now. Uh, well into my college years, I had some of these tanks as a hobby, like we talked about beforehand. But yeah, I, I never initially saw myself as being a researcher or a conservationist or an advocate for frogs and toads in Pennsylvania. So how did you make a transition into operating a not-for-profit? I mean, that must have been quite a big step. And I know to become a, a not-for-profit to get the, I th- was it the, is it the 50, 5013 or 503? Oh, I'm terrible yeah, at that. How did you manage to get that uh, get that ball rolling? Well, I'll be transparent with the viewers here. Right now, it's still pending, but we're right now considered a domestic nonprofit in the state of Pennsylvania. And then once that whole situation goes through it takes somewhere between they said eight months to a year if not longer depending on how slow things are with the irs but uh yeah we could still operate we just can't get grants right now which is a bummer because there'd be so many awesome things that we could do we're just piggybacking off of some of the uh local nonprofits doing some cool stuff in the area but um yeah this is a very interesting story an inspiring story. I got a chance to share a little bit of it at a presentation that I gave to some junior high and high school students two days ago. Um, so I was basically a high school student that didn't go to school much, didn't have very high expectations, never expected to go to college, never thought I was going to do anything. I don't know even exactly where my head was, but it was about my senior year. I went through all kinds of crazy experiences. You know, everybody has their testimonials and things that they've done and crazy stuff they've been through. But I had, a, a, I'd say, some life-changing wake-up calls and experiences. And it led me to consider, well, maybe I should go to college. My parents never went to college. My brother did, but he was a little more secretive with things. So uh, he never really gave me the details about, you know, where, where, where to begin with all that stuff. So it's like the day before the enrollment ends for this community college in town. And I said, you know what, uh, why don't I give it a try? All my friends were going for their SATs and making fun of each other, you know, because certain people did better than others, but I never took one and I didn't really plan to, I didn't really want to be judged by that because I was already in like the middle to lower part of my high school class. So I, I didn't want more for people to make fun of me for. So yeah, I, I just said, ah, oh, you know, since I don't have to take an SAT to get into this community college, what's the worst that can happen? So I go to this community college and like I said, I wasn't necessarily a scholarly student. 
and I was very concerned how it was going to go. Um, my first semester, I ended up, I did decent, like C's and B's, and I got like a D in English, and I was shocked by that because I thought I was very good at English. But it turns out I didn't know how to write a paper. I didn't know how to write an MLA and APA format, and I'm first semester in college, so you could, you know, tell that that's going to be a rock, a rocky road there. Um, anyway, as time went on, I never gave up, even though a lot of people around me thought that it was just a matter of time, but I never gave up. I kept going and I ended up developing a lot more passion and interest in wanting to be the best that I could be. And so I ended up becoming a big, uh, role model and influence within the student body. And I ended up applying like signing up to try and be the vice president of the student body and i was also a club leader at the school and we did so many amazing things had such an amazing time there uh, but i had to keep a gpa for being vice president and it was the first time in my life that i was held accountable in school for having to do something like that and it was a very challenging time but i'm so glad that i was willing to just put my neck out there and, and do it because i learned so much about myself and knew that I could accomplish more than what I thought I could originally. So the time came, two years was up. I had to pick what else I was going to do. And right before I graduated from community college, I said, I'm going to go to uh, the local four-year school right across the street. And I was going to go for uh, religious studies. And so I'm not breaking any rules here. I'm just explaining that that was, that was the initial goal. And that's something that down the road, I'd still be interested in pursuing after a degree in biology. But anyway, so I originally went to this school for communications and excelled at it. I did fantastic. Picked up, you know, I met my girlfriend the last semester I was at the community college and she was also going for communications. So it was like a perfect scenario. Uh, and I was completely invested in communications. So I end up taking this environmental science class and I start hearing about this professor who can teach about herpetology and frogs and salamanders and was super excited about it. Uh, just hearing about this guy because I was just a hobbyist, just somebody who was hanging out and kept them more for fun than anything. And I end up going to see this guy and it was like February and I think it was February 2018. And he started talking to me and he could get real quick from the conversation we were having that I was super passionate. And he slowly started asking me questions about if I ever thought of going to school for herpetology or doing something within the science field. And I told him, I said, I don't know. I mean, I didn't think I was smart enough to get through all of that and smart enough to go through the prerequisites like calculus and chemistry and everything else. And he slowly started putting confidence into my mind and just encouraging me saying hey like i think you are smart enough you can do this and um i had a real difficult situation that i had to face because i had everybody in my inner circle and everywhere around me thinking i'm going for one thing and you know i wanted to entertain possibly doing something else and it took a long time a couple months this battle was going on tug of war and i ended up uh, wanting to go for biology too. So I took it as a minor and I don't even know where it came from, but I ended up coming to the decision that I, I didn't originally think of myself, but why don't I just do both? Like if you're a sports 
nut, then you know there's athletes that are capable of playing two sports and doing it well. And that's sort of how I use it as an analogy as well. I mean, why can't I be good at two different things and be a part of both fields? So I said, all right, I'm going to go for it. After I got through my four year, I ended up finding a grad school that was willing to take me in. And man, the rest is is history with how I ended up getting here. But it was through a lot of hard work and perseverance and never giving up, kind of betting on myself, even if I didn't have everything that was required, uh, trusting that everything that I'd done up to that point to that point would get me to where I needed to go next. And of course, being patient, faith, all that stuff. But uh, yeah, that was that was a big point in my life, a big turning point uh, that led me from you know high school being a floater to now being a grad student who's working on a research topic and you know a state school. Yeah, life takes us in different directions. I mean, there's there's definitely something to be said about the merit behind hard work. And I've had I've had people from all different disciplines, all different walks of life on this show over the past two and a half years. And I mean, the one common denominator that everyone has had, whether it's uh, breeders or researchers and whatnot, is is the you know, putting in the work. And um, I mean, you're you're right. Sometimes you start off in a certain direction, and you you know you find out what works best for you or what your desire is, and you you work towards getting there. And uh, that's definitely you definitely came definitely came a long way, and you've accomplished a lot. Um, the the organization itself. What like what are some of your goals and what are some of the things that you're looking to accomplish through um, PA Woods and Forests? Thank you for asking that. That's a great question, and I wish more people would ask that. So, yeah, PA Woods and Forests is a conservation-minded nonprofit that's focused on the conservation of native frogs, toads, carnivorous plants, invertebrates, and a few other creatures that we target, and we want to create outreach events and opportunities for the community to have the opportunity to investigate these animals, to see them up close, maybe to hold them if, you know, everything is permitted and to just have that experience like how I did when I was a kid. And the way we summarize this for PA Woods and Forests is that we're conserving overlooked species in your own backyard. So you go outside, especially if you're listening to this from the United States, a lot of us, especially in the north where it's cold, you think, ah, oh, there's nothing really exciting out my window, nothing exciting out in the yard or down the street. But then wouldn't you wouldn't you be surprised to know we have carnivorous plants that eat insects, invertebrates, and animals, like carnivorous plants like the pitcher plant, which is the target one of the target species very high on our list. The purple pitcher plant, the northern one, will eat salamanders and it won't eat frogs. And that's just so fascinating. It blows people's minds because salamanders and frogs are related, but they don't eat frogs. They, you know, some of the southern species of pitcher plant actually can uh, have enough liquid that chorus frogs and others can breed in them. And it's just, it blows people's mind. And the idea that a lot of these species are either declining or they're finding ways to be resilient in our backyards, in our neighborhoods. And there's not really somebody out there who's advocating for the frogs. I mean, you have people who are out there for the birds, people who care about the mammals. But I saw a wide open niche, especially where I'm at in Western and Central Pennsylvania, that allowed me to pick up quickly and and run with the idea of backyard conservation, especially for 
a lot of these overlooked animals and also plants. It's interesting that you bring up carnivorous plants. I was watching, um, well, like, hey, look, everybody knows I was I was out sick for a few days, um, and I had, a, I had a lot of time on my hands, so I watched uh, some old nature documentaries from the 80s from when I was a kid. Uh, one of them was, was Nature, which was hosted by George Page at the time, and I never realized the the variety of different feeding behaviors and just the, 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 the complexity of some of the, the carnivorous plants, and it's one of those things where we kind of erroneously think that these things happen outside of the United States, and there's a tremendous variety of them. I mean, even Venus flytraps are native only to the um, southeastern United States, I believe. it's uh, I think it's South Carolina, but... Um, I mean, that's interesting that you focus on the plant aspects as, as well. Was there anything that drew you to the plants? Yeah. Other than them being just super exciting and super cool. I mean, another angle that I looked at it was, is it something, you know, me being a hobbyist, my hobbyist side for a second, can I grow them in a tank with frogs? Because they, you know, they overlap, they interact with each other in the wild where frogs and bogs are. And it was just something that I thought was truly incredible. And I watched some David Attenborough documentaries about carnivorous plants. And um, I have a, I had a professor who was really into uh, propagating, especially the exotic pitcher plants and the passion for them continued to build on me and build on me until I ended up thinking, all right, maybe there is something to this. And I just started YouTubing carnivorous plants and i don't even know exactly what led me to the purple pitcher plant but after i saw it and saw what it was capable of and in my area it's been uh how do i put it it's not listed as endangered in pennsylvania but if you get further to the west of pennsylvania especially southwest it disappears and it's only in a couple of counties and we have like i think 67 counties in pennsylvania but in the southwest region we only have two where it's it's found native and i think that's crazy and you add in it's a habitat where they live that also is you know frog and toad sanctuaries the bogs because they'll breed there they'll get food they'll hang out and there's so many things that make the bog unique for them it only made sense to bring them in as a part of conserving the frogs and toads i mean they all almost go hand in hand especially where we're at in the mountains, um, frogs and pitcher plants. You can hear, easily hear the frogs calling late at night whenever you're out these bogs. And it's just something really special to me uh, to have that opportunity to see them in the wild side by side. I don't know, it's just really cool. So to me, that, that'd probably be my best way to explain. I just had a love and a passion to want to save the habitat and save the plants and animals. It's definitely interesting, and and it's funny because a lot of people, especially I should say beginner uh, vivarius, vivarists. So I guess that's a, I don't know, maybe that's a new term I just made up. But uh, people who are into into making vivariums generally, we we kind of have a you know a short list of plants that we use. Most of them are house plants, and you'll get the odd beginner who wants to incorporate a carnivorous plant, and it doesn't always do particularly well. Have you had luck using carnivorous plants in your temperate style biomes i mean is this something that you can like if someone wanted to they could pull it off in the type of vivarium that would be suited to like native pa species that's a very good question so 
I have a few benefits. The first thing is I have a greenhouse, a small scale greenhouse that I have in the same room where I'm planning on building this amazing 240 gallon. I'm sure we're going to talk about in a little bit. But um, anyway, the the native plants, the carnivorous plants, whether it be sundews, Venus flytraps or pitcher plants, they all have to go dormant. And there was some awesome advice I got from one of my partners, Colin, the owner of the carnivorous plant nursery. He explained about the 45 days at 45 degrees cycle that that's the minimum that they put their plants through some of the species at least and i started implementing that into what i did and i got my mom some pitcher plants because she loves them the fact that they eat flies and stuff like that it just was super exciting to her and um we ended up trying it out to see how would this work and that all the plants came back and they are blooming they still have flowers believe it or not so if you're able to cycle the plant then it's very possible but it seems that they might need warmer conditions than like the cooler temperate situation that I'm capable of producing in tanks. So if somebody has a hallway that's like 78 to 80 degrees, it'd probably be all right. 70s, mid 70s. See, I have wood frogs, so I can't go much more above 75 or else they'll get sick and they could die. So I have to keep the temperature a little bit lower. Uh, and it's been fun experimenting and seeing, you know, what do they actually like? And because, I, like I said, I have some in the greenhouse. I get a chance to play with them and see what if I do this with this light? What if I do this with a heat mat? What if I do this with a certain insect? You know, how do they respond to longer periods without water? And it's real interesting to see. And, and you really learn a lot from experience. So I'm not telling people to go out and get them and kill them, but uh, especially because their prices have gone up. Um, but sometimes doing the research and asking somebody who really knows their stuff and then having it with you so you can physically experience it is the best situation, at least for propagated plants. See, I was guilty of what I'm sure many other people are is going out to a store or something like that. And you see this cute little starter kit with Venus flytraps in it and it invariably fails. Like they, they, they look good for like a couple of weeks. I even tried planting them in a dart frog vivarium years and years and years ago. Obviously it didn't last, but it's funny because we think that we're so sophisticated with the tropical biomes because I mean, for all intents and purposes, a lot of these places of climates with the exception of rainfall is fairly consistent throughout the year. Whereas in here in the Northeastern, uh, Northeastern United States, we've got some pretty significant changes seasonally. Do you think that someone who has a plant knowledge with, uh, say, like dart frog vivariums or tree frog vivariums would be able to transition into keeping carnivorous plants just like, you know, as an aside, not necessarily in any tanks, but you think that having some experience will help you if you wanted to keep them uh, as a side project? Yeah, I definitely think so. And what I'll say about your experience that you had, uh, the experiment with the uh, the Venus flytrap, so I didn't know this until... It was late last year when I spoke with Colin about it, but they apparently like a little bit drier conditions. So if you had them in a dart frog tank and you kept it very moist, I'm wondering if maybe it was just too much for them to handle. Uh, it sounds kind of funny, right, because they're a bog plant. But uh, from what I understand, they, they like it a little drier than the pitcher plants and the sundews. So if you're going to do anything, maybe a pitcher plant if you're a dart frog keeper because it would remind your frogs of bromeliads 
and especially the South American species because it doesn't have to go dormant. Um, that would probably be my my first recommendation. And I know they've sold them at Josh's Frogs. I know they got them at Carnivorous Plant Nursery. And there's probably a few other vendors, but uh, I just I'm promoting the places I know that propagate from seed or have them captive bred. Uh, you just you never know, especially with frogs, and you could assume even exotic plants people might field collect. So, um, but yeah, and I think that it's an amazing way to expand our interest into the the hobby of keeping herps and inverts and even plants. I mean, carnivorous plants are so much fun on their own, just being a, a creation that's able to eat something else. I mean, we don't think of plants that way, but especially pitcher plants there's a lot of people that theorize that the pitcher plant has one of the most advanced mechanisms for trapping insects because it created a pitfall trap and i don't think they have yet a larger understanding of how it did that uh maybe they do i'm just not aware of the literature but yeah it's it's really interesting to think about the pitcher plant that way it's the only one that doesn't move out of the three but it it is very successful with what it does yeah, and from what I understand, it's actually a lot of convergent evolution. It, it, it's it's evolved independently several different times across different uh, yeah. different lineages. Which is, um, I mean, it. I would love nothing more than to have like a huge wall of nothing but pitcher plants. It's definitely on my my list of of, of hobbies. Maybe, uh, uh, maybe that's going to be when I re- like retire in like thirty <laughs> years. But <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 something that's always captured my imagination. But um, just to get back onto amphibians, though, there's a lot of native species that I'm sure I, I encounter here in New York, and I'm sure you encounter in, in PA as well. Can you run down some of the more common or rare or really any of the species that you might encounter in your, your area of the U.S.? Yeah, I can first talk to you guys about the target species we have for PA Woods and Forests. We actually have specific frogs that we prior- prioritize more than others. And there's a good explanation for that. But even some of the more common species that people might roll their eyes and say, oh, why would you even want to conserve them? Uh, in some ways, beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. But on the other end of things, there's a good reason, because if we if we think something is so common that we don't care about it, that's oftentimes how we lose it, because we just don't ever value it enough. And so that a lot of what I do is I try to make sure we see the value in that, even if it's in a small location and it's not impacting an international scale. But uh, the first one that we prioritize, and, and I'll talk about this more down the road, uh, I got a lot of inspiration from my female American toad ace. But yeah, the American toad is definitely our number one. And in some places it's doing really well and in other places it has seemed like it's declined a little bit. You guys have to understand too that I'm looking at it more in the urban and backyard perspective. I understand deep in the forest where nobody's taking their habitat and you know nobody's really going there to hang out. Uh, these animals are probably thriving and, and doing pretty well, but in other locations, they're not doing so well. So they're just a, a top priority. And plus they're just my favorite animal and I'm guilty with that, you know, definitely biased. But anyway, the second one is probably one of the coolest species that we we have. And we have the American toad in the Northeast. So New York and Pennsylvania, New England states, Maryland, all these all these frogs and toads I'm talking about are in all of the eastern United States. So the wood frog is 
definitely one of my favorites. I always have to scramble to get out there to film them. I only get about three weeks and the conservation project that I have on YouTube called Frog Week. The last couple of years, it's been a four year project. The last couple of years, the last three, we would only get the tail end of their breeding season. We never would really catch them at the vernal pools and see the madness. But this year we did. And man, uh, you'd really have a lot more appreciation for them if you saw how they had to continue to further their genes, what all the battles were, and even some of the stuff I didn't talk about in the in the episodes. There's just so many things that wood frogs have to face, especially being the smallest pond frog in the uh, eastern United States, at least in Pennsylvania. So the wood frog and the American toad, they also overlap. They're mountainous. They're found in higher elevations. So those are, are like my top two. Uh, we also have the eastern gray tree frog. And a unique story about this, there's a survey going on in Pennsylvania. It's PARS, Pennsylvania Amphibian and Reptile Survey. It's been going on since 2013. I was like early teenage years back then. Uh, anyway, they were searching for these animals and there were statewide surveys generations before that. And they never found the Eastern gray tree frog in two counties that are close by Cambria and Somerset counties. And nobody had ever found them there. And I mean, it had been interesting because so many great people were looking for them to try and explain, you know, where these animals occurred throughout the state. And last year, I sat out on a quest and it took a couple years, a lot of de detective work, kind of, if you can think of Jeremy Wade on Animal Planet, just going and asking people in bars and just asking random people, you know, times when probably wouldn't even seem appropriate. Hey, have you seen this frog? Have you heard this call? That's what I had to do. And I ended up narrowing down a person who knew where it was for the, the first encounter in Cambria. And yeah, it was, it was one of the most amazing experiences being able to document that first as a citizen scientist, because, you know, I don't have a degree yet, a graduate degree in, in biology. So to be a citizen scientist out there and explaining to the viewers on the YouTube channel that, hey, we just, in a way we made history. Now the great tree frog's not listed as endangered or threatened, but it's also not technically abundant in our state in PA. So a lot of the work we're doing with that frog, trying to find more range where it exists, we're really pushing the envelope further for that species. And, and at some point, we hope that we can get it on the list as being an abundant species, because that tells us there's progress being made, at least for one frog. So those are the top three. The fourth one is the pickerel frog. It was heavily persecuted generations ago, especially in the south where they go gigging and fishing, uh, they would use the pickerel frog. And there was a lot of controversy about that frog. And the government had to step in and actually stop people from using it as fish bait because it was just declining so much. And they're just such a unique, mysterious little frog that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. They just think they're the mini me or like the, the lookalike of the northern leopard frog. But they have such a unique habitat and preference. And uh, they're just such amazing creatures and i'm super excited that i got to film them and have the first ever episode in frog week uh, we're hoping to do a documentary about them next year too um, but those are the main four and the other one that i'll say that i'll explain my thesis work my research work is to search for the northern leopard frog in southwestern pennsylvania because it was long ago the most abundant species of frog in the united states and it was the most abundant in Pennsylvania um, due to pollution, mining, and 
a lot of the common things that we see today. The northern leopard frog declined in most of the state. I think it's only in 13 counties it's documented. But I do have a feeling that there's some good chances through my detective work and other scenarios that it could still be around in maybe a county or two in southwestern PA or central PA. So uh, I'm going to be going out to search for it. And it's one of the main animals that led me to conservation. Uh, I was a real young kid and I told you guys we had frogs and toads in the yard, but we also had some as pets. And I remember my brother had a leopard frog. It was like this beautiful golden color. And I was probably like eight or nine years old. And just the, the color on that frog and just how it held itself, it was just so special. And I learned that they had been declining. And early in my college years, I wanted to try and do something about it. And that's actually where my tanks came in. But um, yeah, I, I wanted to to be a part of helping to find that frog and help it to to thrive again. And now here, maybe close to 10 years later, I'm setting out on a quest to you know to do it to bring it back and rediscover it in a couple places uh, and those are the main animals right now and we can add more as we expand but you know especially just starting out in january of this year we didn't want to you know have a you know an encyclopedia of animals that we f- we focus on so i haven't seen a wild leopard frog in probably since i was like maybe 11 10 11 12 so it's been a good 30 years and we used to see them fairly, not not common, but like fairly regularly. And you're right; it's it's just such a, it's just such an elegant looking frog. It just looks like it's just, it's just it's like like if a frog was like a gazelle, or or a deer. You know what I mean? They just they have this this look about them as opposed to some other species, which are a little bit more kind of clunky looking. Uh, I noticed you didn't mention too much about American bullfrogs. I like where, where I live. Uh, n- I mean, not to the extent that it's it's too out of control, but uh, I mean, on the property that I work on, anyway, we've got nothing but bull- nothing but American bullfrogs, and they seem to just outcompete everything else. Is that an issue in Pennsylvania? Do you have issues with with like introduced bullfrogs or just spots where they've taken over? That's a very good question. I mean, the bullfrogs definitely native in Pennsylvania, but there's a lot of question marks as to how it ended up in certain counties that it might not have been in previously. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories about that. But um, the yeah, the American bullfrog is one of the most fantastic invasive species in the United States that's also invading other countries. But the idea we I don't want people to think that I dislike it or hate it because I definitely go out of my way when I see it on the road and I'm driving, I get out of the car and I pick it up off the road and run it across the street and make sure it gets off safe. And I would definitely take one to a a rehab center. If I found one that was wounded, I don't discriminate frogs and toads, but there's just certain species that I'm actually trying to do some citizen science conservation with that I think would be better uh, suited for for kids and for families. There's a lot of families that are getting involved with with what we're doing. And uh, it's not that, uh, you know, a giant bullfrog wouldn't be good for the kids to see, but understanding and teaching them that that bullfrog is going to eat every other frog that comes to this pond. And it's, um, it's, you know, one of the major predators and it's an invasive animal in a lot of other parts of the world. You know, it doesn't necessarily need some help right now, but if it did, you know, we would easily add it to the list because that's one of the first frogs I ever saw in my life. 
Yeah, they're beasts for sure. And it, it's it's funny because you, you raise a good point. Like you want to inspire children to take an interest in frogs and then you show them a picture of a frog and say, all right, everything's good except for this one. <laughs> yeah, I don't want people to think that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, man, people are always going to think of a bullfrog if you say think of a native species. And that's sort of why another reason why uh, it's not on there, because it's just incidental. You're going to see one. You're going to hear one. You're going to know what one looks like, even if you don't think that you do, just because Kermit, you know, that frog off of Looney Tunes and uh, what there's the one, the frog on Honey Smacks. I think most frogs have been based off of the American bullfrog in cartoons and stuff. So people are going to know what they look like and you know what what better of a teaching opportunity for kids than to say all right these frogs have spots speaking about you know the pickerel frog and the leopard frog here let me tell you why they're different or let me explain how this frog ended up in this county and you know your your grandparents never saw it or even something as common as the toad hey like let me tell you the story about how significant this toad is and how it has such a difficult battle compared to the other species to become, you know, an adult because of how much smaller young toads are as tadpoles when they first start out. So there's so many teaching points you can get on about all the species that, that I highlighted out of the four or five. And you provide walking tours, right? What's like, what's a typical walking tour involved? Like you have members of the community that just show up or do you kind of go out and recruit people? Like, how do you, how do you organize a walking tour and how do you manage to find native species? Yeah, I would encourage anybody, you know, it's definitely not a destination or a bucket list thing, but if you want to come to Pennsylvania for a frog walk, that's what we're calling them. I'd encourage it because I bring out a lantern, a Bluetooth lantern, and that's one of my primary devices or tools because I have a speaker, I have a light, and um, I have a lot of cool stuff that I can do with it. So that was one of the ways I was able to find the Eastern Gray Tree Frog is through audio call. So, you know, I have an app and or I could use YouTube and anybody can do this. But you're able if you're able to play the audio call, the animal will respond back if it's breeding season. So I'm able to teach the kids what their call sounds like before we start the walk and they can hear it pretty good on the speaker. So then we play like a little guessing game in the beginning and everybody will say if they've seen or heard this species and the whole goal of that to start out with, it's an icebreaker, but at the same time, well, there's two reason real quick is if they, if they've heard it and it's not a frog that's common, then I'm going to be asking them about it all night. But the first reason is that as we're walking on the tour, they'll have a chance to possibly hear one of those animals and they'll know what it is and they might get more excited or they might want to go look for it. And so that creates a lot of uh, building opportunities for the the tour itself, the, the frog walk. Um, but yeah, that's one of the main things. And then I use a spotlight. I have all kinds of lights to locate them. But a lot of it's good planning and having good relationships with especially nonprofits and private landowners. Um, that seems to be where we've been navigating the most because there's a lot of red tape if you want to do something in state parks or if you want to do something in um, public land and on public land. So, uh, I'd love to be you know able to do that kind of stuff in the future. And I'd be up for learn, you know, taking people on frog walks in different States and, and doing stuff too. If you have any listeners that want to show me around or, 
you know, any listeners that are interested in, in wanting to reach out and work together on stuff. It's definitely something worth investigating, at least to, you know, compare notes or, I mean, do you ever talk to people in other parts of the state? Because, I mean, P- Pennsylvania is, I mean, it's not like Texas or Alaska, huge, but it's a fairly decent sized state. Do you ever communicate with people on like opposite ends of, of Pennsylvania? So Pennsylvania is about five and a half to six hours across, you know, from east to west or west to east, whichever way you're going. Uh, there are a handful of people that I am aware of. And, you know, I try to have a good mind of who the herpetologists are, who are the people working in the agencies, who are the educators and identifying those people. And it's so crowded in the east uh, that I think those people have their network and some of them want to work with the people out like in central and western PA. But once you get past Harrisburg, it's just it seems like the sky opens up because there's all kinds of people out there that are doing some amazing things. Um, But the people, it's almost like more of a regional thing, I'd say, like central and western Pennsylvania. The folks seem to want to work together and stick together. And if there's people that want to reach out, you know, that that's welcome. And I think a big part of that is through that survey that's been going on since 2013 it's allowed people to meet and people to compare notes like you said and so there's a lot of camaraderie in that perspective but at the same time it's it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is uh all friendly with each other um i'm more of kind of in my own lane working with a handful of people and willing to to meet and greet new people but i just have some very different perspectives on you know i i don't just want to i don't i don't just want to go herping or uh just do field research i also want to be in the hobby of keeping them and making the care better for them so there's i have a lot of very passionate and competing interests and so i think that it kind of it puts me in some different boxes or conversations as opposed to a lot of the guys who are just out there like every night going looking for herps so, Aaron, I have a question about some of the species that you keep captively, and I know it can be tricky with native species. I know, like on the, I mean, frog forum used to be a thing, not so much anymore. But I know on frog forum, a lot of people kept uh, native species, and they would ask about it. And usually, the first question out of someone else would be, uh, you know, is it is it permitted? Uh, you know, I, I here in New York, there's regulations for native species like you're allowed to take frogs if you have a fishing license but you're not allowed to take any uh snakes or lizards or um or salamanders what's it like in pa i mean you mentioned something about having to get special permits like which species require special permits to to keep and how do you go about getting something like that i mean obviously you're a charity so i'm assuming it's easier for you but what's that process like well in pennsylvania you have to have a fishing license and it's a little more strict than other places. So one fishing license, which is all you can have is good for one animal. So like one, and it, it's like, and I, when I say one animal, I mean one American toad, one wood frog, one gray tree frog, one Northern leopard frog. They have a list of the abundant species or animals that they consider that are basically abundant. And there's a, a list and you're allowed to own like one of each of them. And that's just uh, how, the regular fishing license works but yeah that's that's just how the regular fishing license works but at the end of the day if you want to keep multiple of one species then 
you either have to have multiple people in the same household that have a fishing license or you have to try and become an educator and becoming an educator is definitely not for everybody because you have to use the animals more than just being a pet so like i have to do outreach events i have to do all kinds of different stuff like youtube actually counts which is pretty cool but you have to actually have some realistic events too and showcase the animals and and use them as a as a teaching vehicle for a lot of uh projects and things that you do so the educator permit is good for the same species that you would get from a fishing license except you're able to have multiple uh, and i don't think that there's a limit but i don't think that they would want somebody hoarding like 50 frogs uh you know all the same species that'd be kind of suspicious if you ask me but um yeah and i think that there is a way to to get more at risk species if they if you know you build up trust and if they see that you're doing things the right way and um i also know that when you do sign the the permit when you ask them to do the permit um they have the right at any moment to come to your house and inspect and see how your animals are so i would imagine that's going to happen down the road for me but um that's one of the rights that you give to them. So, you know, if somebody has bad intentions of just saying, oh, I want to keep frogs, just keep frogs, or I want to just keep frogs for whatever type of reason, except for to serve the public or for a teaching experience, then it's probably not going to work out. You know, you just be better off just even just keeping one. But I'd recommend not most people not keeping native species because the vet bills are pretty outrageous and there's just a lot more that has to go into keeping a native species than keeping exotics what about the seasonal variations like um i mean the only time i've ever kept anything native was maybe for like a day or so and then i kind of you know released it where i found it i mean a lot of the species like uh, american toads and whatnot i mean i mean these things overwinter how do you go about maintaining them year round in a vivarium do you have to like replicate this seasonal changes or how do you how do you manage that well i think the best way to do it is to if the animal wants to estivate if it wants to dig down and hide for a period of time to let it do that their metabolism and everything goes down in the winter well it goes down starts in the fall and it it plummets um but yeah, I mean, lowering the temperature is not a bad idea. Some frogs and toads that are native can go the whole way through without needing to sleep, without, you know, getting down and digging down or burrowing or whatever. But it's probably a better idea to keep the conditions very similar because if you fluctuate it, it, it could be asking for a lot of disaster to happen. I mean, if you're dropping it, or it naturally drops in the winter, that's perfectly fine. But if you're taking it down to 40 degrees or putting them out in the garage, that could cause a lot of problems because most people aren't capable, or I should say if it's, so there's legal reasons for, for brumation. Like most people aren't allowed to do that because that opens the door for a lot of uh, disaster and a lot of bad things to, to come into it. So uh, it's actually considered it depends on how you look at it. It's, it's a controversial topic, but most people it's, it's not preferred that they brumate their native species. 
there can be casualties. There's a lot of reasons for it, though, too. Yeah, that's one of those uh, debates that I'd heard, or not really heard, but I'd seen kind of go back and forth in frog form years ago was whether to estivate or not. And I mean, I, for, I mean, you're telling me what I've also heard as well is that it can be fairly risky if the animal's not in top condition and you can really, you can sustain some pretty significant losses if it's not done, or even if it is done properly, I believe it can still be a bit of a risk. So your big project, your kind of magnum opus is this 250 gallon vivarium project, which I've seen some pictures on your website of some of the different builds that you've done, but can you walk us through it? Like, um, just let's kind of go from start to finish. Like, let's just say that I, or one of the listeners wanted to create a PA woods biome in this big tank that you're building. Walk us through the steps. What, what are you doing? Like, how do you start out with the design process and how do you choose a substrate and plants and ultimately like which species do you pick to go in it? Well, that's a very good question. Actually, the way I look at it and what I try to teach people on the Frog and Toad Facebook group that I'm an admin for is you think of the animal first before you're going to do anything because it doesn't matter how cool the setup is. If you really don't like the animal or if it bores you or it's just something you don't get excited about at all, then you're not going to want it or you're not going to take care of it. So first having that passion, you know, a lot of people that keep dart frogs or even red-eye tree frogs, they have some amazing setups because they love those animals. They care about those animals. They're going to spend top dollar for whatever they want, you know, to make the setup as good. But if you start thinking about, and and I feel like this is kind of a rough way to say this, but you start looking at how people are keeping American toads and how they're keeping tree frog, like gray tree frogs and stuff like that. They're keeping them in totes. They're keeping them in shoe boxes and 10 gallon tanks and they're much larger animals and i've heard a lot of people say oh well they're not as intelligent or they're not they don't use the whole tank like i hear a lot of different opinions about that and that might be true some some american toads they might not you know they might be comfortable in a 20 gallon but we also have to realize for one most of these animals are wild caught if not all of them and they had an entire forest and they could cover a couple miles depending on where they went. I mean, toads, wood frogs, they're nomadic. They don't just hang around the same spot every night. I mean, they have like weekly cycles where they'll go and look for food and where they know it's going to be. So, and I could also say from a, just a testimonial example, my toads use the entire tank. They, from start to finish, when I had them in the 125 gallon, they used all six feet. I have, I have one toad in a quarantine tank. It's a 40 gallon. She uses the whole tank. Um, I have another toad with the two wood frogs. That's gonna, they're all gonna go together in this 240 gallon. But the other quarantine tanks, a 55 gallon, the wood frogs and the toad, they use the whole tank. So the idea of we don't need larger tanks because the animals don't want to move or they don't, they're, you know, they're lazy or whatever. That's not the case actually. I think that they become obese or they lose their sense of uh hunting hunting in a way because we took that away from them in a smaller tank you know they go up corner the cricket or the roach and it's gone but if you allow them to have that opportunity to to really hunt or to experience a larger setup it enriches their lives and it really it just makes the animal feel uh, more comfortable and it, i'm not going to say that it, it 
enhances and adds on to their life because that's debatable a lot of people could say but it definitely makes the quality of life better and that's what i strive for so for an example if you're going to keep a temperate biome you have to first know what animal you want to keep and why i see a lot of people they they make some beautiful setups for anoles for green snakes and for green tree frogs i see very commonly uh, but I'd encourage, you know, even if you're going to keep a toad, like something that a lot of people think is a real good, lazy animal you can keep in a small box, um, to think about if it's if it's going to be a toad or if it's going to be a native frog, to give it as much space, if not more, than the exotic ones because, you know, this, this isn't something that was raised in captivity. So I'd first think, what kind of animal do I want and what's the... What do, what do I think and what do the experts think? What does Google think and YouTube and all these other places? What does everybody think is the best place to uh, start with getting an enclosure? And we both talked about the forums and some Facebook groups. And you do get some good advice. Probably better advice came from the forums because there were some very experienced keepers. And you had better conversations. But uh, there are some good groups. And you can feel free to join the Frog and Toad Facebook group we have some stuff on there where we show what some recommendations are but yeah so i'd first start with the animal and then with the size of the tank and then i'd work my way around well where does the animal live what does the animal like what does it prefer you know forest can it survive uh more open so having larger plants but an open floor type of concept or does it need a paludarium with water is it something that it doesn't necessarily have a preference and you can keep it in multiple ways and you know, it's just whatever you like. So the, the biome, if you will, of the tank is one of the most important, but it's, it's not top two. It's got to be at least number three, because like I said, that the animal has to be the top priority. Uh, and then once you get to that area where, okay, I found the biome, I know what size tank I'm going to get. I know what plants I want to get. And I know, what the animal prefers then you could start thinking about soil type and you could start thinking about you know what do the plants need what what does the animal need if it's a toad like the digging medium that's important versus a gray tree frog or you know another species like a barking tree frog even where the soil doesn't necessarily make much of a difference because they're going to be more arboreal only come to the ground to soak and to hunt and you know, maybe just move around, but they're primarily going to be sleeping and hanging out on the side or the top of the tank or terrarium. So um, I would I would definitely break it down like that uh, for soil type. And then I'd add another layer to this and say, all right, I got my animal, got the plants, know what type of soil I'm going to choose. Um, I would also throw in accessories, so misting systems and foggers and smart devices. A lot of people don't think of this when they think of their pets. Um, one of the big things that I pride myself on is making sure that my animals have the most enrichment possible. So like I said, the fogger and the fogger will turn on to hydrate them. And um, actually, it helps them to go to the bathroom, which is a big help because I have one toad who has... Um, intestinal issues but the fogger makes it much easier for her to pass stool um, and the misting system is fantastic especially for tree frogs and pond frogs 
they seem to like it a little more than toads but i i'd recommend both i think that there's a place for both in the terrarium you know that you get the misting system that cuts down on how much you have to water it'll hydrate the animal the fog is something it's like a deeper humid uh water vapor that's gonna cover the entire tank it won't necessarily water the plants it won't get deep into the soil unless you leave it on for hours but uh i i would throw those in there and the reason why i say smart devices is i just think that's where we're headed um i have all of my stuff on like power strips that are smart or uh smart plugs and the reason for that is because it, it's so normal then like this for them the day and night cycle is consistent and that there's nothing better than trying to have a consistent cycle so that way they kind of know what's going on and it's not 10 o'clock at night and you just realized you left the light on or it's you know five o'clock in the morning and you left the light on all night uh, and those are th things that can happen they've happened to all of us and if we have those smart plugs or if we have the smart plugs even connected to the fogger or the mister we don't have to worry we can schedule them to turn on and uh, automation is one of the biggest things that i i try to push and, and that i uh try to do myself and and so i would add that as a layer uh, you know lighting is a huge deal if you're going to keep anything and i mean anything i'd recommend some type of uvb an additional light of led and having them mixed together because not only does it create a, a dynamic light but it also it'll help the plants grow and the small percentage of uvb will stimulate the animals it'll give them some nutrients you know it'll help them to uh, to get D3, vitamin D3, and that's something that they need or else they'll get metallic bone disease, metabolic bone disease, I apologize, uh, MBD for short. Um, you know, those are some important things that can be prevented. I'd, I'd also throw out there if it's a native species or if it's a, you know, wild caught, you want to get a gut load called Missouri Better Bug Gut Load. That actually saved my animals' lives and I ditched the dusting method completely. It's been like five or six years. Um, and just completely got away from it because what I found from the research study from the Missouri Better Bug Gut Load and what I saw with my own animals, I haven't lost any animals and they haven't gotten MBD. They haven't gotten any lack of nutrients or deficiencies or anything like that. And that's pretty awesome. Uh, you know, native species are very complicated. And I'm sorry for such a long winded answer, but uh that's sort of a lot of the process that i would go down if i was going to be looking into you know getting a frog or a toad and starting over well it's definitely one of those situations where i guess we're automatically kind of predisposed that the species that live in our immediate proximity I mean, species that we see in our backyard are automatically easy to care for and require less care. I, I don't know why that is. That just seems to be some kind of a bias that we all seem to have. But I was thinking about it seriously. And I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's more of a pain to, I mean, number one, to deal with any kind of wild caught animal, because that poses a whole host of problems. But to be able to replicate a species environment like a dart frog, which is you know, fairly consistent. I mean, they can live in the same con conditions throughout the year, 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of, you know, of night. But I mean, do you, like all those little quirks, like how do you, like, for example, like, do you, 
keep them on the same light cycle all year? Do you, do you give them like shorter days in the winter, longer days in the summer? And like, like what about prey choices? Like you, do you keep them like on a steady diet of crickets or do you vary it or do you give them wild? Like how do you, how do you kind of navigate some of those challenges? Yeah, I could get pretty crazy into this. So I'll try and be very specific. Um, I have two different rooms. I have a cold room that has an air conditioner all year and it's very climate controlled. That's where the wood frogs are, you know, and, and the temperate species. And then I have a hallway, which is for the warm species. So I only have two species of frog that are exotic and I have a Southern skink and they live in the hallway. The hallway is very interesting because it's not heated and it doesn't have uh, natural air conditioning. Like it wasn't built in. I have a window unit, uh, but anyway, I let the temperatures fluctuate. So right now, like the high today was 80 degrees. And I think the hottest I've allowed it to get was 82 until the the smart air conditioner turned on and cooled it off a little bit. But I let the temperature get warmer in the summer and I let it cool down and it might get into the 70s or low 70s, maybe even upper 60s at night in the winter. And that really stimulates the animals in the in the hallway. My skinks have actually mated three out of four years. Um, and they could have made it this year. I just don't know about it because they're in such a large tank now. Um, but before they were in like a Exoterra 36 by 18 by 24. And I could always see the babies. Um, but the animals seem to actually respond to that fluctuation. And I do actually change the light cycle. Right now I have the lights turning off about 745. Similar to what it is outside. It's a little bit earlier than outside. But I have them turning off around that time. The animals in the cold room, I'm still preparing them for that 240 gallons. So actually, they've been on a running schedule for a year now of it, the light turns on at 9 and the light turns off at like 9.30. And the greenhouse and the two quarantine tanks both are on that same schedule. So that way the plants and the animals both are connected in that sense when they go in the tank. Um, yeah, so prey items. That's probably one of the few things that I prioritize and I preach about to people all the time because the diversity of prey items not only stimulates the animal, but it also gives them a varied diet. So I tend to, to feed heavily more so crickets, dubia roaches, uh, the European nightcrawlers from Josh's frogs, canyon isopods, and then I also throw in wax worms and repti worms. I let them eat the the moths of the wax moth when they change and uh, the black soldier fly whenever the the repti worms pupate. I try to get pretty much everything. I mean, my animals have eaten silkworms. They've eaten house flies, blue bottle flies. They've, they've had pretty much everything on the list for Josh's frogs, for their insects. There's like one or two things they haven't had. And uh, I've seen a big difference instead of somebody who just feeds crickets and mealworms not saying that you know if that's the best they can do it's better than feeding them nothing but if you're able to and i don't want to even say spoil them i oftentimes for the facebook group i'll say think of it like you're having dinner all right and if you want to have dinner of just ramen noodles which would be kind of like the mealworms or the wax worms it's enough to sustain you but it's not something that you're going to build protein on and it's not something that your body is going to use um consistently it's and imagine just eating ramen noodles the entire time 
your whole life. Uh, I think everybody would be tired of that. It would suck and it would, it would be no fun. So by giving them crickets or dubia roaches, or even I've heard reptiworms are another good staple diet. And I would throw in, even though they're controversial, isopods and earwigs and ants, ants as well. I didn't even talk about them. Um, but if you're feeding them those items, it's like you're sitting down and having steak, you're having chicken, you're having a hamburger, you know, you're having fish, you're having something that your body needs, the main source of protein. And then some of these other things like wax worms and mealworms and superworms, they're more like the potato chips or the snacks. And I think there's a place for them, but I think that like, for example, the way I do with, with my female toad ace she might get three or four wax worms and she might get you know four crickets or one or two roaches um some of these animals eat so well that in the cold room they're on a little bit of a diet to be honest with you but um that's the way i look at it is i'm trying to give them like their fats i mean wax worms are amazing for building fat but roaches and crickets are phenomenal for protein so you know, especially with the gut load, you add all that stuff together and the animals have artificial nutrients like they would in the wild. It's the closest that we can get to that, but it takes a whole host of feeder insects and uh, commitment by the keeper to want to do that. Do you ever have any issues transitioning wild toads to taking a more captive diet? And let me just, I want to phrase this real quick. I was talking to Audrey from Urban Amphibia about Pamilio a couple of episodes ago. And we were talking about, I think it might have been off air, but um, when a lot of the, the Pamilio come in, they don't always do too well. And one of the theories is that they might not be able to handle the transition from a wild diet to a captive diet, meaning the microorganisms, the probiotics, whatever you want to call it, in the frog's gut are a certain way when it comes in from, you know, wherever it comes in Central America. And then feeding fruit flies kind of upsets that, and that might potentially be a health issue. Do you have any issues with American toads or any of the native frogs, like switching them over to crickets where they don't do so well or they refuse food? Or, like, is there any situation where stuff like that might happen? Well, I'll just say real quick, I can easily believe that with uh, with another species having trouble. That's why I said, you know, I don't know what the best diet plan would be for dart frogs, but I can tell you for native species, it's something that it hasn't necessarily been deeply researched, but there is a research paper that shows that that Missouri better bug gut load is all you need. If you want to actually have, you know, you feed the, the feeder insects, the Missouri better bug gut load, and then it gives your animal the nutrients that it needs. It gives them the protein. So uh, when I was saying that, yeah, just specifically speaking from a perspective of, the native species. However, I use it for all my animals. Um, but so the, the interesting thing about the wood frog, the American toad, and the gray tree frog, which is why I love them so much, is that they're more so gener generalists. American toads more than anybody else in the entire state. American toads will eat more varied diets than the rest of the uh, frogs and toads in the entire state. And part of it's because they're nomadic, the other part of it is that they just don't seem to care. Um, they'll eat all kinds of things that people wouldn't even expect. I've heard stories of female toads eating field mice. I've heard stories of them eating a handful of snake species like red bellies and brown snakes and possibly mountain earth snakes and even green snakes, like the larger toads and some of the frogs. Um, you know, they'll, they'll also take on 
large millipedes and snails like they'll eat what i mean some things they're not supposed to eat and they do learn from that a lot of people don't think that they experience uh learning lessons but they will if they get stung by a bee they're not going to go eat that bee again uh a researcher frank indiviglio actually wrote about that uh, i don't know if he did the study or if he just knew the people that did the study but anyway so what I'm going to share with you is actually very fascinating and it hasn't, I don't think it's ever been researched in the native species, but so we have this amazing opportunity now where we have so many invasive insects and a lot of people would rightfully so think that they're a pest. They're horrible. They don't belong here. They're not, they're not doing anything. They're not contributing to anything, but in actuality in the urban areas and the, suburban neighborhoods, especially where I'm building habitats and I'm documenting these frogs, I've had the chance to see American toads eating uh, the Asian stink bug. I've seen wood frogs eating greenhouse millipedes. I've seen both of them eat earwigs. And there's a lot of theory that they can also eat the spotted lanternfly, maybe not in numbers enough to make us care. But the fact is, it seems that our generalist frogs and toads appear to be incorporating some of these invasive insects and invertebrates into their diets. And that might be one thing when I graduate that I want to look more into, but it's incredible to think of that, that, you know, there is a, um, a national rapid decline, international even decline of inverts. And even though they're declining, we have invasives that are filling different roles and I'm not making a case for invasive species, but what I am saying is, that there's a chance that our native frogs and toads are incorporating them into their diets. And it's just one of the most fascinating things to me. And, and one way anecdotally to, to think about this too, I'm not saying it's scientific at all, but you think about all the YouTube videos of people throwing various uh, inverts in for their American toads. You usually see in American toads, green frogs and bullfrogs, they'll eat anything. And if we introduce if we introduce the banded cricket, the dubia roach, these are invasive or non-native prey items for these animals. And they eat them. They go up to them, you know, and they eat them. So I don't necessarily think in the United States it's as big of an issue for our species. Uh, I don't exactly know how much research has been done on the topic, but it is definitely something that deserves more research uh, because our our native species do seem to eat them. I, I don't know quite how much or how that changes their lifespan or anything like that, but I can tell you that they they do go after them, and it, it's the same thing in captivity. Uh, they'll eat the mealworms, they'll eat the crickets. So it's just something to some food for thought, if you will. Yeah, it's a positive outcome to a negative situation. So. Uh, I want to finish up with the American toad because I know that it's a popular species that I get questions about and I'm really unfamiliar, but if someone wanted to keep an American toad, walk us through what the person would need, how, how you'd set up the tank or the terrarium or whatever, and like, what would you need to keep one successfully from start to finish? The first thing I'm going to tell you is that they need a lot of money because uh, you're going to you're going to have to deworm the animal. The average lifespan of a wild caught American toad that somebody has brought in and wants to keep if they don't take it to the vet, it's between a year and five months and two years and eight months. And that's 
a statistic I got from the, the, the Frog and Toad Facebook group and also from Frog Forum and our Reptile Forum and different places like that. I've been a part of different things and seen people will get their toads and then uh, in about a month or two from now, they'll start saying their animals are getting slow. And they'll think it's from brumation or, you know, they'll, they'll want to go down and hide and estivate. Uh, and then their animals will die and they'll say, oh, I don't know what happened. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know how he passed or how she passed. And they'll feel bad and people will feel bad for them. And, and I'm not trying to sound unempathetic, but, you know, especially because I keep these animals and I respond to most of these questions or uh, most of these people. If you don't get the toad dewormed, what happens is a buildup of parasites and then the toad gets so sick that it can't live anymore. So you have to you have to deworm them. Uh, most of the parasites are going to be rhabdius nematodes and pinworms and uh, different things that I, I've actually experienced myself. And it's not just American toads. It's any wild caught frog. They all have to be dewormed or they're going to die. Pond frogs, uh, it's pretty sad to see because they they tend to not do well either it takes a little longer for the gray tree frogs and others but uh it gets to them too and so i'd first say have a good vet make sure that you can take the animal to a vet before you you take it because if you can't get it seen by a vet it's just like a dog you know how often do you take a dog to the vet i mean you got to take it to get its shots if it gets sick you could take it and if you don't provide the same opportunity for your frog or toad then that's negligent in a way and that's irresponsible so first and foremost definitely a vet and then if you're still considering keeping it you got to make sure it's legal and if it's legal in the state and you have the permit or you have the fishing license or whatever you need then i'd say you want to get at least a, probably a, a 29 to a 40 gallon to allow the animal to move around you you want it to be 18 inches wide and you want to make sure that the animal can can move around or else they could get obese so definitely not a 10 gallon or a shoe box or anything like that um next i'd say you'd want to get pothos and the autumn brilliance fern and the peace fern those are three plants that look really nice the toads can't really smash them and they just tend to do well with toads you have to remember that they burrow and dig up so the more plants you add the more likelihood you are of them dying so Unless you know how to do it or uh, you're able to provide a lot of space, the toads are going to dig and they're going to dig under the plants to, to, you know, to hide or to feel safe. So, I mean, that's what they'd naturally do in the wild too, so you can't really blame them. But I'd recommend those plants. I would say definitely to get a fogger and a mister if you can. I mean, this is going to be a, an expensive bill if you want an American toad. This is just from somebody who's kept them for a long time and uh, somebody who hopes to research them in life as as a career so just understanding them in all different facets and, and explaining this i'm definitely not trying to uh discourage anybody but i'm also not trying to encourage anybody because i know i pay over a thousand dollars for vet bills uh every year for these animals and i have four toads so uh like ace she's had prolapses because of parasites and i thought we were going to lose her and it was 500 dollars each prolapse I mean, how many people are going to pay 500 for the first one? And that's something that happens, you know, if the animal's not, if you don't understand the, the severity of parasites, which I didn't back then. So um, some of it's bad 
examples, like learning experiences that were painful, that were expensive. But, I, you know, and I, I'd say everything that I said before about the LED and the UVB lighting, the Missouri Better Bug Gut Load, get it, you know, become a member of the AmphibiCast. So people will talk about all kinds of things to help you become a better keeper, but also uh, enjoy coming to the Frog and Toad Facebook group that I've been talking about a little bit because we teach people how to take care of their animals and uh, we have a lot of good care sheets a lot of good uh, information we have vendors if we don't know the answer we'll send you to the place that does and so you'll be able to ask them questions so i would say a good support cast supporting cast is equally as important as all of these things and uh, make sure that you also really 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 want this animal because once you take it you can't put it back especially after 30 days uh there's a law in pennsylvania once it's 30 days uh you can't put it back and that would mean you'd have to either have to put it down surrender it or something but you know it's just not worth it if it's not an animal that you think is a primary animal you know not something to tuck away under a shelf but something to put on top of a stand or a table and enjoy then i would really recommend getting another exotic frog because uh, these animals need a lot more than, and I'm not downplaying exotics. I mean, red eyes are super exciting and they're very hard to care for. They're, they're intermediate and, you know, people do a great job with them. And, you know, I, I have whites and bell frogs. And so I understand, I love the exotics too, but I, I try to do a better job in terms of size of the tank and stuff like that for the, the wild animals that I have, because you know, I'm trying to mimic the best I can where they came from. And so I hope whoever listens to this, they, if they're really considering it, they do the same thing. But ultimately, you know, is it really, really something you want to do? Like, just continue to ask yourself that because it's, it's very expensive. Well, I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I'm a big proponent of a high price point and, and not, not to sound like a, a snob, but I feel like if you're going to invest a substantial amount of money and time into something to me it shows that you're more serious about it it's like when you go to a, a prime example is, is is a reptile expo when you go and you see someone ask legitimate questions about that the target species that that person wants to purchase i mean it can either go some people are like oh yeah you know you stick it in a 10 gallon aquarium and then then you feed it you know mealworms and then that's it and then people are like oh that's easy and they buy it as opposed to like everything you just mentioned, I mean, there's a substantial investment in this, you know, like, like the, the deworming. Um, I, I mean, I just, I'm going through treatment with one of my snakes, which has been costly and expensive, but it's, you know, it's part of the way to get into this hobby is you have to understand that if you're going to do it correctly and make sure that the animals have what they need, is this going to be a substantial, there's <laughs> going to be a high price point. I mean, just on a personal note, I always feel like this shouldn't be a cheap hobby. You know what I mean? Because then you have people coming in here today, gone tomorrow, and ultimately what do you have? You have unwanted animals. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I just, I, I don't feel like things should be as easily obtained as they can be. You know, that's just my 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 angry rant about uh, <laughs> things but um well we're kind of at the end and i wanted you to just tell us about like what your personal opinions are about where you think the future of um well of your organization and really uh, what do you think the future of a lot of these native species are i mean do you think that 
you know, five, 10 years, the populations will be improved or there's new challenges? Like what, what does the future hold for uh, the PA biome? Yeah. And this could even be for the Northeast, if you will. Uh, and there's so many awesome opportunities here to talk about some stuff you brought up. So I think the first thing I'll talk about is PA woods and forests. I mean, if we're looking at ourselves a five-year plan or something, we're definitely all in on getting the 501c3 because then we can write grants and, you know, we can do a lot of uh, really cool stuff for the, the frogs and toads. And the thing that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to target a very different group of people than most places would because a lot of people are targeting the public land and the things that are easily accessible but i'm trying to go a little further than that and when you start talking with other nonprofits that own land that maybe have never had it surveyed um you start talking to some of these private properties people that live on the property and you start explaining hey i found a frog near where you live can i search your can i search your property um most times they're pretty cool about it and it's just one of the things that I really enjoy doing because then I get a chance to teach somebody who would never care at all about a frog. They get a chance to see something, even if it's common or if it's nothing uh, that I'm looking to document that's that's special. It's still another opportunity for a learning experience for somebody. And it's a lot of fun to, to be able to search and look for these animals. Uh, so I'd say we're going to have a much stronger grasp on working with the nonprofits and working with some of these private landowners, the more publicity that we get, the more people see me and they understand what I'm trying to do. I think that we'll get a lot more opportunities. I'd like to say in the next five years that I found the Northern leopard frog and a couple other of these animals that don't seem to have been searched for as in depth as what I will, because maybe I'm just, more excited about them than others i mean we have a lot of herps in the state and most people are salamander and snake oriented so me being a frog guy is a little little out of the box so uh and lizards actually we actually have lizards in pennsylvania and people don't know what those are so i'm hoping that i can change that narrative and so pa woods and forests hopefully will add more target species it'll become a bigger nonprofit, and we'll have a lot more recognition in the state so that way we can do a lot more uh programs and, and outreach and i'd say to answer your other question where are we headed in terms of conservation and what is the what does the reality look like for these animals uh it really is still going to be a question mark no matter what i say because uh there's habitats that are safe now but maybe next year or five years from now the the landowner is going to sell it and then they're going to make it a parking lot and we'd never have seen that coming. Uh, maybe there's vernal pools that are going to dry up because we get droughts. Maybe there's chemicals that are going to go in or a major invasive animal that comes through. But if we look at it from the perspective right now, it seems that in the forests around central and western PA, a lot of the species that we have observed and that we care about are doing well. They're hanging in there. Uh, even with chytrid and ranavirus, they still seem to be resilient. They're doing well. Um, it's when they get both of them that they die. So we haven't had a lot of mass die-offs. Uh, so that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is 
in the suburban neighborhoods and the urban neighborhoods, it's really going to come down to outreach because in my area, it's, it's a decent sized suburb. Uh, but I had seen a decline for years in American toad specifically, and we hadn't seen wood frogs. It was like five years. It was going on five years because they paved our road and they cut down a few trees near the road and we just hadn't seen them coming. Uh, we didn't find them and we would search. So after I set out on this conservation project called frog week and I actively went looking for the animals and we did road rescues and brought some of them on heavy traffic areas that were close by to like the pond in, in the backyard. Um, excuse me. We would take them, you know, to the breeding grounds or just moving them off the roads. Yeah. I'd say that actually has made a difference. We've gone through, I think seven generations, seven years of American toads coming to our pond. And this year we had 16 pairs of American toads and that rivaled a couple of places in the forest. We had last year, I put in these artificial vernal pools. I had toads use them, but I was trying to attract the wood frog. We found that they are actually still in the area. The first pair of wood frogs made it in one of the artificial pools last year. This year we had four pairs and we had two male wood frogs that didn't have a mate. So uh, the, I'm hoping the numbers will keep expanding. I keep putting in backyard artificial pools to try and encourage the wood frogs, encourage the toads where the gray tree frogs are because they actually aren't. At, at least I'm not aware of them being so close to my house. I travel out there and I'm going to work with some of the neighbors on the private properties to put up some artificial pools for the gray tree frogs to breed. So the more we do with that, the more that we create habitat and enable them breeding grounds away from roads, uh, the better the opportunity is for their generations to continue and the better it'll be for them overall. So a lot of success, but a lot of hard work is, is where I think we're going to go. Uh, and, and, you know, that's just for my area. If you ask me about Eastern Pennsylvania, I wouldn't have a clue to tell you the truth because uh, I'm not in that region and it'd be the same thing like New York. Uh, it's going to just take people that are passionate about their home, that they want to see things change. They want to see things happen and, you know, have more crazy frog people going out late at night with all black on and a headlight driving around like a maniac pulling frogs off of the middle of the road. You know, it's, it's going to take stuff like that for the, you know, the Northeast overall and for the world to, to really uh, continue to help these frogs. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how there's a lot of commonalities, whether it's in Central America, whether it's in Africa, whether it's here. It's just, I mean, habitat, you know, uh, habitat degradation seems to be the biggest problem. And just like taking simple steps, like you said like, um, you know, making sure that there's there's breeding sites like vernal pools and uh, access to roads that, you know, they can cross the road without getting turned into little frog pancakes. But, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, you know, when you think about it from the lens that I usually do, like outside of the country, you think, oh, it's just, you know, all these things that are and really doing the same thing here. You know, it's really not that dramatically different from uh, from outside the country. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, listen, Aaron, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And, um, I know, I, I know everybody, my voice was kind of low tonight and not really on point. I, I apologize, but this is, you know, the best we do. Um, I, I want to thank Aaron for being patient cause I had to take a pause and kind of 
cough for about 20 minutes, 20 minutes or so, which I edited out. But, um, Aaron, if anyone wanted to find out more about your, uh, your work, where would you direct them to go? Well, I would love for uh, all the listeners here to check out PA Woods and Forest website because we have events on there whenever we're hosting events. We have a blog and we have so much information. And I'd encourage them to check out the YouTube channel, PA Woods and Forests. Um, it's a really good resource for captive animals, for pets. We have hiking on there and then we have the conservation projects that I talked about. Um, it'd be good to teach your kids, showcase uh, what's going on, especially if you're a native, if you're from the Northeast and uh, you know, you want to teach your kids more about the environment. We have some videos for that. So there's all kinds of cool stuff, but um, yeah, feel free to email us too at pawoodsandforest at gmail.com. Excellent. Interesting stuff as always. All right, everyone. I want to thank Aaron for being my guest tonight. And uh, it was very interesting. You know, I, I, to be honest, I really wasn't expecting uh, American toad care and whatnot to be as sophisticated as it is. But I guess really when you think about it, every, every frog and toad is going to require an extensive amount of care. So you know, I learned something. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I've got some pretty good stuff coming up on the horizon. We've got some vivarium episodes coming up, which is going to be a lot of fun. So uh, other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and I will catch up with you again next week.